And so before we jump into Acts, I wanted to share something from the book of Revelation. Book of Revelation is incredible. One day, we're going to work our way through that entire book. A couple months back, we went through the, 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 seven, the letters to the seven churches. But one of these days, we're going to go through the entire book. But in the meantime, I'm going to continue quoting from it. Because one, it's a book of incredible hope. It points us to the triumph of King Jesus. And I think we all need to be reminded of the triumph of our King. Two, the reading of the book comes with the promise of a blessing, and, and I think we could all use a blessing right now. So with that, I want to open our time in the Word with a reading from Revelation chapter 22, verses 1 through 5. It goes like this. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river. The tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it. And his servants will worship him. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. And night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever. See, the healing of the nations and the name of God on our foreheads, that's the eschatological hope that every tribe, tongue, and nation would bend their knee to King Jesus and that we, the family of God, would live for eternity in perfect fellowship with one another and with the triune God, those of us who have been called by his name. And in a world where division and vengeance triumph and are seemingly heralded as virtuous, the family of God has an opportunity to subversively show onlookers a better way. And that's where our text is going this morning. And so if you have a bulletin, you'll notice on the right side a simple outline and on the left our text. And we're going to be looking first at verses 1 through 17, a universally unbearable yoke. If you remember from last week, when Paul and Barnabas arrived back at Antioch, they declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. The actor in that particular verse is God, all that God had done with them and how he, God, had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. But it says in chapter 15, verses 1 through 3, but some men came down from Judea. See, God was doing something. God was acting in the world and, and the actions were, were accompanied by signs and wonders. So, so we knew it was God who was acting. But some men came down from Judea. And they were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small discussion and debate, no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. 
So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. But some men came down from Judea. And what'd they say? They said, unless you are circumcised, you cannot be saved. See, Paul and Barnabas, they have this lengthy discussion and debate, which resulted in them being appointed with some of the others to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. And along the way, and I love this, I love what Paul does. Look what he does before they even have the conversation, before they even get to Jerusalem and have this discussion, Paul, he kind of goes about in Phoenicia and Samaria, and what does he do? He describes in detail the conversion of the Gentiles, which brought great joy to all the brothers. See, what's the point is that Paul... Even in the midst of this dispute, even in the midst of everything going on, he remains faithful to what he knows God has called him to. See, Paul does not bow to the allegiance of men. He doesn't submit to the authority of men. He submits to the authority of God. And God appointed him to be the apostle to the Gentiles. And he knew that God was at work because he saw it with his own eyes. He saw the signs and wonders being performed. And who knows, maybe Paul was present at Pentecost, seeing the signs and wonders that were happening. Maybe he was. We don't know for sure. We know, we know he was there a little while later at the stoning of Stephen. And so he was aware of the work that was being done in Israel. And now he was, he had first row seats, front row seats to what God was now doing among the Gentiles. And so regardless of these people, these men who came down from Judea, Paul continued to faithfully proclaim the work of God. See, he wasn't scared. That's what I love about Paul. It's also what makes me a little nervous about Paul because Paul is one of those people where he really doesn't care what people think. He really doesn't care. And we're going to see that in a few minutes. We're going to see this, this distinction between, between someone like Luke and someone like Paul. We'll get there in a second. But, but Paul, even in the midst of this dispute, he never wavers. See, Paul's example of faith is one that we must strive after as followers of Jesus. Like, he's the guy. He's a beautiful example. He even says in one of his letters, follow me as I follow Jesus. I mean, that takes moxie, right, to say, follow me as I follow Jesus. And so we need, to, we need to hear those words, and we need to look at the life of this apostle. He's not God, and, and he makes sure people know that he's not God. We saw that last week. But he is one to be emulated. He is one to be followed, for sure. And, and the text continues, verses 4 and following. It says, when they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders. And they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth 
the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders. And they declared all that God had done with them. See, a plain reading seems to indicate that the apostles and the elders are on board with Paul. They're kind of saying like, yeah, 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 like we, we love Paul. We, we know who Paul is. You know, we were a little concerned at first because we remember what he did to Stephen, but, but he seemed to prove himself trustworthy. But see, there were some Pharisees who had believed, right? This is really interesting because these particular Pharisees are identified by Luke as believers, those who had faith in the risen Lord. This is important. Luke identifies them as Christians. These are brothers. And, and that's important for us to understand because even Christians can be blinded by their traditions and national pride. And we're going to see what I mean by national pride in just a second. Some context. What is circumcision? Well, circumcision dates back to God's covenant with Abraham in Genesis 17. It says, you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign. What's a sign? A visible representation pointing to something beyond itself. And it's a sign of the covenant between me and you. In addition, Scripture required that foreigners be circumcised to become a part of the covenant people of God. Furthermore, in the Maccabean period, Jews had risked their lives to circumcise their children. It was a distinguishing boundary marker of Jewish ethnicity. In other words, their ancestors died for this. Their ancestors died for this. See, circumcision meant that you belong to God, and it was a matter of both religious and national pride, things which are not bad in and of themselves, but when placed in a position of superiority to the kingdom, it becomes idolatry, right? And we've been talking about that a lot over the course of this series, right? That our identity, first and foremost, is in Christ, and every other identity we possess bows in submission to King Jesus, and that means our identity as Americans, my identity as an Italian, whatever identity that we have bows in submission to King Jesus. And so what we have going on here are some people who, though they are said to be believers by Luke, they're forgetting who they are. They're getting wrapped up in their national pride is what's happening. They're getting wrapped up in their religious zeal. And, and Paul is not going to have any of that. Paul's not going to have any of that. And, and after there had been much debate, it says that Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, again, it seems that everyone is in agreement that this is a dispute among the family of God. Kind of a little sidebar here, right? We're all Christians here is basically what's happening. And, and sometimes we need to remind one another of that as we engage in debates and disagreements. We're all Christians. We're brothers and sisters. That is so massively important. Because what we've, what we've experienced over especially the last year or so is that the division that is taking place out there is seeping into the family of God. And, and that's... 
That's heartbreaking to our king. Because what did, what did Jesus die for but to secure for himself a people from every tribe, tongue, and nation? And, and I, I mean, I got three kids, right? And, and when they're fighting with each other, not like the bickering, but when they're really mad at each other, like that's heartbreaking. And I imagine as, as, as your children get older and the fights get maybe more serious, it's even more heartbreaking to view. Because division in a family is not something that, that it's horrible, right? And we've all experienced it because we live in this world. We've either experienced it or we've been very close to it. Division in family is painful, especially when it's your own family. And so, so when God sees the, the division that is, take placing, that is taking place within his family, the family that he sent his son to die for, Oh, that's heartbreaking for him. <clears throat> Excuse me. But this is a family issue that we're looking at here. He said that by my mouth, the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. See, the point is, is that the mark of a family member in the family of God is faith. And faith transcends ethnicity and any other worldly and demonic division that might be overtaking our culture. And it is understood faith biblically as someone's trust and allegiance to King Jesus. And this is the faith that saves. In other words, what Peter's getting at here is that circumcision no longer is the boundary marker. Because the boundary is no longer one of ethnicity or national pride. See, the boundary marker is faith. The boundary marker is our allegiance to King Jesus. And so that is the message that Paul is trying to get out to the world around him. That is the message that Peter is getting out in this discussion in Jerusalem. And that is the message that we need to embrace as followers of Jesus some 2,000 years later. And what a glorious message it is. Because as I've said before, the majority of us would not be sitting in this room if the dividing wall of hostility had not been taken down. That is such an important thing for us to wrap our minds around. A little bit more context. <clears throat> I'm sorry, I had a little cold this week. I'm sure you can hear my nasally voice. Some more context. While there's some debate, it seems that the events taking place in Acts 15 are the same events taking place in Galatians 2. In Galatians 2. So I want to I flip over there for a few minutes. If you want to flip over there in your Bibles, Galatians chapter 2, let's take a look. I'm going to read through and just kind of comment along the way. It starts off here in chapter 2, verse 1. Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem. And Paul is the author of this particular letter, the same Paul that we were talking about back in, back in the book of Acts. Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. It seems that Titus might be one of the others described in Acts 15 too. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles, 
Why? In order to make sure that I was not running or had not run in vain. See, there's a humility to Paul in this situation. He wants to make sure he's doing it right, even though he kind of knew he was doing it right all along. He wants to make sure he's not running in vain. And then he says, but even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, so they might bring us into slavery. I think it's interesting here, right, because Paul refers to them as false brothers, while Luke refers to them as believers. I guess the jury's out, or maybe the personalities of the two are starting to emerge. Paul is that zealot that never left him. Luke's a historian and a theologian. He's probably not as zealous as Paul is. So we don't really know. Were they believers? Were they not? I don't know. We'll go with Paul. We'll go with Luke. You can make your arguments later. But it goes on. He says this. um, To them, we did not yield in submission even for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. And from those who seemed influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. I love that, right? I love that. Paul's kind of like, yeah, they seem like they were important, but I really don't give a rip because, like, that doesn't matter to me. That doesn't matter to me. What matters to me is the gospel, King Jesus. That's what matters to me. And he goes on. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived that the grace was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. And then here's where it gets a little interesting. But when Cephas came to Antioch, Peter, I opposed him to his face. Why? Remember, Peter was the guy that was just preaching, saying, like, no, 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 the gospel goes to the Gentiles and they don't need to be circumcised. Trust me, I've seen it firsthand. And maybe he even had this situation in mind as he was speaking. Not only do I know firsthand, but I don't want to deal with Paul again. Let's see what happens here. I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. Peter was hanging out. He was hanging out with the uncircumcised, at the table, sharing food doing things that the Jews would never even dream of, Peter was doing. Remember, Peter was the one who brought the gospel to Cornelius, the one who had that vision where he was told, rise, eat, and kill. It's all good. It says, but when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically. means they were play-acting is that word. Along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. You can imagine the tears in in Paul's eyes as he writes, even Barnabas, his confidant. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas, before them all, he publicly calls him out. If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? And so, in other words, Peter forgot who he was. Peter forgot who he was. And, and this, this isn't crazy, right? We do this. We forget who we are. 
We forget that we belong to King Jesus. We forget that the table has been swung wide open so that people from every tribe, tongue, and nation can sit and eat. And we know we've forgotten this because as we look through church history and the checkered past of our people, we could see how often we've forgotten this. How often we've barred certain types of people from the table. And what we read in this is that that should never be the case. That every single other identity that we possess bows in submission to our identity in Christ. Every single one. And then Paul shifts a little bit. He starts talking about justification. He says in verses 15 and following, We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, meaning the Mosaic law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For though the law, through the law I died, through the, for through the law I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. Listen closely here. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. And so what's happening here is that Paul is is stating simply that, that the works of the law, circumcision, and the other aspects of the Mosaic law are not the means by which we enter into relationship with God. Because those things have been pushed aside. See, see, in the words of Bob Dylan, the times are changing. That's what's happening right now. See, N.T. Wright, New Testament scholar, he says it like this, one must lose everything, including the memory of who one was before, and one must accept and learn to live by a new identity with a new foundation. Those who belong to the Messiah are in the Messiah, so that what is true of him is true of them. What's the point? The family of God is marked by faith, a faith that breaks down barriers and swings wide open the table of fellowship so that we might sit and dine with others, with brothers and sisters from every tribe, tongue, and nation. See, this is why back during the civil rights movement that that segregation was, was a gospel issue. It was a gospel issue because what was happening And what, sadly, many who claimed the name of Christ were participating in was that that lines of division were being drawn between, between different people groups. And what God says in his word is that the only line of division are those who believe and those who do not. See, that's really important for us to wrap our minds around. And the implications are are massive how we live our lives with our neighbors, how we live our lives with people from different cultures, people from different socioeconomic um, 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 
status, whatever the word might be. It matters. It's a gospel issue. Because the gospel breaks down the barrier. Because the line of division no longer is marked by one's ethnicity, but rather it is marked by faith. By faith. Justification is all about, for sure, our righteous standing before God. But it is also about who gets to sit at the table. That's massively important. It's massively important. It is absolutely about our righteous standing before God, but it also deals with who is seated at the table. And it seems to be what Paul has in mind as he's talking about it in Galatians chapter 2. It's a both-and issue. Flipping back to Acts 15, verses 8 through 17, goes like this. And God, who knows the heart, Peter's still speaking, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. He bore witness to them by giving the Holy Spirit, and he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear, but we believe that we will be saved through through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, just as they will. And all the assembly fell silent and they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. Again, signs and wonders seem to be an indication that God is at work. After they finished speaking, verse 13, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. And this is James, most likely the brother of Jesus. Listen to me. Simeon, or Peter, has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. And here's a a, a quotation from Amos chapter 9. After this, I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins. I will restore it. That the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. Peter continues his speech, making the argument That the same thing that happened to us, the Jewish people, has happened to them, the Gentiles. Meaning that there is no more us and them, there is only the church. That's important. There's no more us and them, there is only the church. And, And what's interesting, Peter makes this remark, he says, God knows the heart. In other words, the heart was always the point couple passages from the Old Testament, Deuteronomy 10, 16. Circumcise, therefore, the foreskin of your heart. Deuteronomy 36. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, that you may live. It's interesting that the circumcision of our heart precedes the ability to love the Lord our God with all our heart, with all our soul, that we may live. Because the circumcision of our heart is that new birth that takes place in us when we bend our knee to King Jesus. Again, the defining mark of the people of God is what? Faith. Faith in the risen Lord Jesus. 
And when we put our faith in the risen Lord Jesus, our hearts are circumcised. The Spirit breathes new life into us. And we can therefore, in turn, walk out the commands of Jesus, loving the Lord our God with all of our hearts and our neighbor as ourselves. And that's the mission here at Redeemer Fellowship, that we would share together in the life of Christ by loving both God and neighbor. And that only happens if we have been indwelt with the Holy Spirit of God. And again, the defining mark of the people of God is faith. And it's faith that breaks down barriers across the board. It says in Jeremiah 4.4, circumcise yourself Therefore, circumcise yourselves to the Lord. Remove the foreskin of your hearts, O men of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem. And then Paul picks up on this in Colossians chapter 2. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ. That phrase, made without hands, is so key because what was made with hands were idols, If you look back at that language throughout the Old Testament, it's always referring to idolatry. And so what was happening is that that these Jewish Christians were, were worshiping their circumcision, the thing made with hands. They were making an idol out of it. And what they were really worshiping, if you dig deep, is their national pride. And we need to be careful of that. That's something we as followers of Jesus, especially living in America, We need to be careful of that. I love our country. We have so many freedoms that we can proclaim the good news of Jesus without worrying about being tossed into jail or anything like that. But we need to be careful that we don't worship our country because our allegiance, first and foremost, is to King Jesus. Oh, that's a massively important thing that we understand. So many forget that often. We get wrapped up. Like Peter, we forget who we are. You know what's beautiful? There's grace, even for those of us who forget who we are. I've I've often had a lot of opinions about about evangelicals. And, and, And lately I've been just kind of coming back to and being like, you know what? We sin, we mess up, right? We're saints, but we speak in the accent of sinner. And we need, we need to forgive one another. We need to view one another through the lens of the resurrected King Jesus. I I tend to be more with Luke on this issue, that these were believers that were just kind of having some memory lapse. Paul Paul might be right. I'm not saying, you know, I'm not going to get into a debate here on But it just seems that we all have these missteps. And even Peter had that misstep. Peter forgot who he was. And we often forget who we are. James, the brother of Jesus, he quotes from Amos 9. And I want to read that quote one more time because I think it's that important. He says, after this... I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it. That the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. Called by my name. 
See, that, that was a reference that was often used to describe the people of Israel. And what Amos is doing is saying, oh, no, no, it's, it's, it's more than just this particular ethnic group. It's more than that. See, it's for the nations. I am calling a people from every tribe, tongue, and nation to be mine, that they too would have my name written across their foreheads. That's a beautiful thing. One scholar says that the use of this citation from Amos 9 establishes that the Gentiles do not have to become Jewish in order to join the eschatological people of God and to have access to God in the temple of the Messianic age. We get, to, we get to remain who we are. We get to keep our cultural identities. And again, I, I'm happy about that. Like I said in the past, I love being Italian. It's important to me. And I don't say that even just jokingly. It's genuinely important to me. I love it. And I'm sure all of you love the traditions and cultures that you grew up with. The beautiful thing about the gospel is that you don't have to get rid of that oh, but they better bow in submission to King Jesus. See, that's what matters. The text continues, verses 19 through 35, and we're going we're gonna to do a little bit more skimming of this last section because he kind of repeats himself here. James says, Therefore my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood, for from ancient generations, Moses had had in every city those who proclaim him, for he has read every Sabbath in the synagogue. So like I said, this means that the good news of Jesus doesn't require us to relinquish our ethnic, racial, or any other identities we might hold dear unless they cause us to break the first commandment which is, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. So, yeah, James is all about it. No circumcision. That's a tall order to ask of people, especially adults. But abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. And so this command is twofold in its implication. One, let's not completely trample over, to, over the traditions of Moses. Gentiles, do not cause your Jewish brothers to stumble. That's kind of what he's getting at here. But more importantly, these things that he articulates are related specifically to pagan idol worship. See, Gentiles did not need to become Jewish but they sure could not remain pagan. They didn't need to become Jewish, but they could not remain pagan. Faith means repentance. And this goes back to what we were looking at in Galatians 2. Justification means that I have been brought into new creation and I stand under the banner of Christ's righteousness. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who gave himself for me. And again, to quote N.T. Wright, the same quote I read before, one must lose everything 
including the memory of who one was before. And one must accept and learn to live by a new identity with a new foundation. Those who belong to the Messiah are in the Messiah, so that what is true of him is true of them. And so, yes, we don't need to give up who we are, but, man, we cannot have any other gods besides God. That's what he's getting at here. That's what he's trying to press in upon them. And then, and then the rest of it is just basically all of that wrapped up in the letter that they send to the churches. And, and people celebrate and they're excited because they don't have to be circumcised, which makes sense. But the point is, is that, is that what faith means, faith means that we do have to repent of our old way of life. We have to put off the old and put on the new. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. And so, yes, those idols, those things that, that, that if they were taken from us, we would lose our minds, we need to put them in their proper place. We need to put them in their proper place. Idolatry is, is an abomination to God because it's spiritual adultery. We're cheating on God when we pursue other things above him. And we're cheating on one another because, because when we break fellowship with God, we're breaking fellowship with one another. That's what happens. Sin is not just a vertical thing. It has, it has implications. Last night, my kids were, were spending time. They slept, they slept in the same room. Well, at least they started to, right? And, and my youngest, and you know Joshua. You've seen him run around. He's, 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 a, he's an energetic boy. And, and he just kept on talking. He kept on talking. He, kept, he would not go to bed. And, and I went up there at 10 o'clock. I'm like, all right, everyone go in their own rooms. And, and Elizabeth was upset because she's like, well, I didn't do anything. I'm like, I know, I know. But sometimes sin affects the whole camp. It's true. It's true. Is it not true? It's not just vertical. It's horizontal as well. And so as we wrap up this morning, what we've been confronted with, while it might be simple enough that the gospel transcends culture and ethnic barriers, far too often we, like Peter, we forget who we are. Humans are tribal by nature. We love our team and we will fight tooth and nail for our team. But whatever team or teams we might belong to, they must always bow in submission to the name by which we are called the name that is plastered across our foreheads. See, there's been a lot of conversation lately in the media and in the church around things like critical race theory, wokeness, privilege, etc. I gotta be honest with you, I'm not qualified to speak on these things. Whether they're 100% wrong, right, somewhere in between. But what I am qualified to speak on is the good news of King Jesus. Those of us who have been called by the name of God, those of us who have the name of God written on our foreheads, we must, one, draw great comfort from this. 
We're members of the family of God, a family that stretches across every single man-made barrier imposed upon society, a society that is still held captive to the powers and authorities. Two, we must examine ourselves. Even Peter stood condemned when he broke fellowship with his brothers because he was fearful of what some seemingly important people might think of him. When we call people to Jesus... We are calling them to bend their knee to the king. We're not calling them to adopt our traditions, our cultural norms, American ideals and behaviors, whatever. To become a Christian means we don't have to shed our identities, but rather it means that our identities are now in submission to the king. And three, the mark that identifies us as the people of God is faith. And it is by faith that we are baptized with the Holy Spirit of God. There is no longer an us and them. There is only the church. And as one scholar said, in Christ, Israel is neither reaffirmed separately alongside the church nor replaced by the church, but rather redefined around the crucified and risen Lord Jesus. So I want to close our time in the Word this morning by reading a passage that was written in light of the amazing and saving grace grace of our Lord Jesus from Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 22. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, Strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one. He has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. By abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and he preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near, for through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built upon the foundations of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Let's pray. Father in heaven, oh, we love you so much. We thank you that we are called by your name, that we have been folded into the people of God, and that at the end, every tribe, tongue, and nation are going to be surrounding that throne, hurling up hallelujahs to you, Lord God. Oh, we can't wait for that day. Father, I pray that now we would be a picture of what is to come, that we would show the world a better way, that reconciliation would take place even in our midst. 
that broken relationships would be mended and redeemed, that divisions between different ethnicities and races and socioeconomic peoples would be broken and that we would all sit at the table dining together with one another and with you, Lord God. Father, we love you with all of our hearts. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.